Okay, we're all here. Let's, let's just do one ohm. We'll sit quiet for five seconds and then I'll begin. First two, uh, the first two slokas of the 13th chapter. Sri Bhagavan Uvacha, the Lord said, Idam Shriram Kaunteya, this body, Idam Shriram, O Arjuna, Kaunteya, Kshetram, Abhidiyate, it is said to be like a field. The word body here just doesn't mean the body. It means the body, the mind, the senses, the intellect, and the ego is all the shariram. And it's like a field. The one who knows this field, the ego, the booty, the mind, the senses, and the body, the one who knows that, they call him, they call him, Shetragnya, the knower of the field. Tadvidaha, those people who know about this. Who are the people that know about this? The Vedantins. The Buddhists don't know about this. The Jews don't know about this. The scientists don't know about this. This is exclusively and uniquely a teaching only found in Vedanta that there's a witness of the I-thought. No other philosophy on the planet in the history of human thought has ever said that there is this witnessing consciousness which is different than the body, mind, senses, and ego. It's the Asadharana Dharma, the unique teaching of Vedanta. Nobody knows about it, nobody talks about it, nobody even has an inkling because you can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't smell it, you can't infer it, no amount of logic will ever reveal it. No matter how much you look for it, you'll never find it. Tadvidaha, the knowers of that. In the Brahma Sutras, Shankaracharya makes the statement, you can only know the self by studying Vedanta. And the guy objects, that's ridiculous. I know myself. I am so-and-so. I don't need Vedanta to know myself. I know myself better than Vedanta. Vedanta doesn't know where I was born, what my feelings are. What I know myself better than Vedanta. How can you say we can only know the self from Vedanta? I know myself I am so-and-so. Ahamidam. I am this. That's the objection. So Shankara replies, no, no, no. The self of Vedanta is not the I am so-and-so idea, but the witness of that idea. He says that witness 
is not known in any religious text, nor can it be known by any of the logicians. It is only known in Vedanta. It's the unique teaching of Vedanta. With no witness, there's no Vedanta. The Buddhists say there's no witness. They say that the thoughts know themselves. One thought comes, and it knows itself. Then another thought comes, and it knows itself. There's no witness of the thoughts. Vedanta says the thoughts can't know themselves. They don't know when they're there, and they don't know when they're gone. There has to be another principle. If the thoughts are changing, the only way you could know they were changing is because there's an unchanging principle on the basis of which you say the thought is coming, the thought is going. If there was only the thought, it wouldn't know when it was gone, because it's gone. This witnessing consciousness is the unique teaching of Vedanta. No other philosophy, Sufi, Buddhist, Zoroastrian, science, rationalism, empiricism, common sense, nobody knows about this witness. But here it is in the Gita. The one who knows the ego, he's called the Shetranya. That's another name for the witness. This is the unique teaching of all of the Upanishads, and here it's being repeated in the Bhagavad Gita. It's not a theological idea. The witness of all of your thoughts is a fact that you have to discover, not a belief that you have to live and die with. Is there a witness? Is that your true self? You have to examine and see, is it true or is it not your own experience? He who knows this ego, body, mind and senses is called the knower of the field. For those who know it, that means for those who know Vedanta, tat vidaha. So, if you look, Shankara's commentary is short here, so I'll just read this. What is noted by the pronoun this, idam, this, is specified as this body, shariram, O son of Kunti. Everybody know who son of Kunti is? Arjuna. Hey Arjuna. This body, this body, O son of, is called the field. Why is it called the field? The kshetra. Because it protects one from injury or because it perishes, charati, it perishes every moment. It's called the field because it perishes or disintegrates. Or, as it gives rise to the fruits of works, it's only when you have a body, mind and senses that you can do any type of karma. As long as you're identified with this body, mind and senses, as long as you take yourself to be the Shetra, then you can do karma. It's the field of works. It gives rise to the fruits of works, just as a field does. A field gives rise to the fruits of works. You plant a seed, and then a fruit comes out of the field. In the same way, this body 
gives rise to the fruits of activity. Iti means indeed. In the text means thus, indeed. Him who knows this field, the one who knows the field, who knows the body. What does the body mean? From the foot to the head. That means from the tip of the toe to this up here, this is the body. This is the sharinam. From the tip of the toe to the top of the head, and it makes and makes it an object of knowledge. That which objectifies the body, the subject which knows the body, is called the Shetramya. That which objectifies the body and makes it an object of knowledge, either spontaneously or acquired through teaching. They describe that as the knower of the field. The one who objectifies the body is called the Shetragnya. Here, too, iti means thus. Who are they? Who is the ones that know that there's a knower of the field? The knowers thereof. Those Vedantins who know about the Shetragnya, the witnessing consciousness that objectifies the whole body, mind, senses, and ego. The knowers are thereof. The knowers of the field, and who is the field knower? In our ignorance, we don't know who the field knower is. We've mixed up the field knower with the field, and they've become like one. They're kind of like, if you take milk, and you pour water into milk, and you give it a stir, where's the water? Where's the milk? There's just one thing there. Does everybody know about the Paramahamsa? You've heard about the Paramahamsa? You? You? A Paramahamsa, you've heard of Paramahamsa Yogananda? A Paramahamsa means, it's an honorific. It means a great sage, a Paramahamsa. But the real word means para, supreme, hamsa means swan. Paramahamsa means the supreme swan. And in mythological times, they believed that there was this magical swan called a paramahamsa, and he had a magical beak. And what did this beak have the capacity to do? If you were to take milk or cream and put the water in and mix it up, this Paramahamsa was able to swoop down, put his beak into the milk and water, and pull out the water and leave the milk. He could separate these two things that seemed as though they were absolutely one and inseparable. This Paramahamsa was able to discriminate to take out one and leave the other, to separate them. A sage is the same thing. The self and the not-self is like milk and water. They become one. And only a paramahamsa can separate the shetranya from the shetra. We have to become like paramahamsas in order to realize this truth. 
what is known and who is the knower? What is the field and who is the knower of the field? What is the object and who is the subject? If you can see who the real subject is in you, you'll see it's not the ego, it's not the body, uh, it's not the intellect, it's not the mind, and it's not the senses, and it's not the body. That there is an inner subject called the Shetragna, the knower of the whole field. This body is like a field, but it's going to become explained more as, as the chapter goes. But Shankara says here, 2.0, thus have been mentioned what the field is and its knower. This is the field, and the one who knows that is the knower of the field. That's you. You're the knower of the field. Is that all there is to know? No. There's something more to know. And what is that? Shetragnyam chapi mam vidi sarvakshetreshu bharata You should know that that Shetragnya in you is me. I, that's Krishna. That's the Supreme Atma. That's Paramatma. That witness in you is me. This body is not me. The senses is not me. The, the mind is not me. The intellect is not me. The ego is not me. But that witness of all of that in you, you should know that that is me. Your inner self is God. Me means God, the Supreme Reality, that Satchitananda, that non-dual reality. That's who the Shetragnya really is. Because later on you're going to find out there's no Shetra, there's just Gya. There's only the knower, nothing known. But as long as you think there's a body, then the self is called the Shetragnya. And that Shetragnya is the Supreme Lord. You should know that. That's the unique teaching of Vedanta and of the whole of the Upanishads and the whole of the Gita is that there is a witnessing consciousness in everybody and that witnessing consciousness is identical with the Supreme Reality. Shetragnya Chapi Mahavidi You should know that that Shetragnya is me in all the Shetras. The Krishna in me is the Krishna in you. But Krishna tells Arjuna later, Ahamatma Gudakesha Saravabhuteshu, I am the self in all beings. That's who I am. I'm not a guy who's colored blue and has a flute and lives in Brindavan. I am the self in all beings. That's my true nature. Those fools who think I have a body, they don't know my real nature. There's a verse in the Gita like this. Those people who think I have a form, they don't know my supreme reality as the infinite self that exists in everybody. That same Krishna is in all of us as our own self. In theology, that's a blasphemy. How dare you think that you're God? But in Vedanta... It's an absolute truth that's taught everywhere. You are that, Tattva Here, know the witness. 
to be me. That witness in you is me. In all the Kshetras, that means the same Atma, that Paramatma is in everyone. So myself and yourself and yourself are the same. Your ego is different than mine. Your body is different than mine. Your se- but yourself is myself. They're one. They can't be different because the self is indivisible. That witness in you is the witness not only of your body, it's the witness of time and space. It's the witness of the waking and dream. It's not in time. It can't be divided. It's indivisible. It's imperishable. It's ever-present. It's never hidden. It's always shining. You are that. That's your nature that you can't get rid of. You can't even think it away. You can think away the witness. You can think away the field. But you can never think away the field-knower. When everything is gone, that consciousness which can't be negated or thought away, you are that. That is God. He's ever-present, ever-shining, never-hidden. And then Krishna says a very important thing here. He says, Shetra Shetra Gyorgyanam, the knowledge of what is the Shetra and who is the Shetranya, Etatyanam Matamama. That's what I consider to be the knowledge. There's no other knowledge that you need. Everybody in our ignorance has mixed up the Shetra and the Shetranya. And I say, I am this. I am young. I am old. I am fair. I am a man. I am a woman. I am happy. I am... The I, who's the subject, is mixed like that milk and water. But we need to get the jnanam. What really is the Shetranya? And what really is the Shetra? If you get that knowledge, that's what Krishna says, that's the knowledge. There's no other knowledge you have to get. That's the supreme knowledge. The whole Gita is only about getting that knowledge. Because when you know, I'm not the Shetra, you don't die. This body is going to die. It was born, it gets sick, it gets old. But the Shetranya... The self in you is unattached, unaffected, ever free, ever pure, ever awake. But if we've mixed it up with the Shetra, then I am born. I'm getting old. I'm getting sick. I want to be happy. I want to be free. All in ignorance. Because my nature is eternally free eternally blissful, eternally happy. That's the knowledge. Who's the witness and what's witnessed? Who's the subject and what's the object? We've mixed them up. And this mixing up is called... Somebody tell me, what's that called? Pratibhimba. Pratibhimba? Is it? No. I mean, that means a reflection, but... 
a vyasa or a vidya. It's called ignorance. That's the only ignorance there is. It's a misconception. You are the subject. Check your experience. You've just not checked it. So naturally we take the subject as the object. But if you examine, you'll get the jnana, knowledge. Not the belief, not the hope, but you'll see the fact of the matter. Vedanta is not an imagination that you have to imagine that you are God. It's a discovery. It's a discovery of a fact about your own experience that you've overlooked. That's the knowledge. There's no other knowledge in the Gita. That frees us from the bondage of samsara. It puts an end to birth and death. It confers on us infinite freedom that we already have. But because of ignorance, I thought I was a mortal. When the ignorance is gone, I am immortal. You know that triambakam? Urvarukam bandana. Like a cucumber who separates from its branch. This, the shetranya gets separated from the shetra. And then mokshiya, mrityo mokshiya amritat means from death bring me to immortality. When the self gets separated from the not-self, which has been identified with because of our ignorance, when that happens, that's called moksha. That's called immortality. If you'll notice, and I'm not going to do it, the longest commentary in the whole of the Gita is right here. It goes on for six pages. If we had another week, we could go through this. It's quite challenging. You can try to read it yourself, and then if you have questions, if you want to, you don't have to do this. You can go through this commentary. But we're going to go to the third verse now. And the third verse continues like this. He's, now he says, there's the Shetra and the Shetranya. So in the third verse he says, Tat Shetram Yatche Yatrik Yadvikari Yatahayat. That Shetra. What it is, that means yatche, yadrik, what it is like, yadvikari, what are its modifications, and from where has it come, and what are its powers. Tat samasena meshunu, you listen to that from me briefly. I'm going to tell you briefly what the Shetra is. You listen, Shrunu, I'm going to explain to you, Arjuna. You have to understand that the Gita is not a teaching for Arjuna. It's a universal teaching that applies to everybody equally. It has nothing to do with being stuck in a war and what you should do if you ever get caught in a war. He's talking over the shoulder of Arjuna to each one of us. And he's telling us, listen, I'm going to now describe to you 
what is the Kshetra, what are its modifications, what is its nature, what is it like. And then he says, and I'm also going to tell you about what the nature of the Kshetragya is. That's the Pravabha. And what are the powers of the Kshetragya? What is the Kshetra? What is it like? What is its modifications? And what are the powers of the Kshetragya? So Shankara says in his introduction to the next shloka, that's 4.0, he says, the truth of the field Kshetra, and the field-knower, Kshetragnya, sought to be set forth. The Lord lords, that means praises, in order to stimulate the listener's interest. Krishna wants to get our interest about this subject matter. Who cares what the Kshetra is? Who cares who the Kshetragnya is? Well, why should I pay attention to that? And so this next verse says, Rishi Bia Bhuda Gitam, Chando Bia Vividai Pratak, Brahma Sutra Padai Shahitumapir, Nishitaihi. Rishi Bia Bhuda Gitam. This teaching has been sung by the Rishis. Do you know who the Rishis are? The rishis are the ancient sages that composed the Upanishads. What I'm going to tell you now, Arjuna, is not a new teaching that I'm making up. It's an ancient teaching. It's already been taught by the rishis. It's not a new teaching. This has been taught by the sages of old. Rishi Bia Bahuda. Not by one rishi, but by many rishis. This teaching has been taught by sages from time immemorial. Chandobir vividahi pritak, and it's been proclaimed in the hymns of the Vedas separately. This same teaching I'm going to teach you now has been sung by the rishis, it's been proclaimed in the scriptures. Brahma Sutra Padahi. It has been taught in the Brahma Sutras, Padaihi, by the words of the Brahma Sutras. Hetumat, filled with reasoning. Filled with reasoning. Not with no reason at all behind it. Hetumat bir, nishchitaihi, that is very decisive. This reasoning is very decisive. It's in the Brahma Sutras. It's been sung in the Upanishads. The rishis have proclaimed this thing that I'm going to tell you now. Shankara says this verse is to get our interest. I hope you got your interest. So the next verse then says, What is the Shetra? Mahabhutani ahamkaro buddhi avyaktamevacha Indriyani jayashikamcha panchache indriyagocharaha. While I'm reciting these verses in Sanskrit, of course you don't know what I'm saying, so it gives you a chance to read the English, so you'll know what I'm coming up to. Mahabhutani. Maha means great. 
Buddha's elements, all of the great elements, that's earth, water, fire, air, and space, are called the Mahabhutas. All of these Mahabhutas that make up the whole universe, you see, this is ancient physics. <laughs> they didn't have uh, atomic particles and stuff, so they divided it in things that they could see, earth and air. and So, all of the elements, the basic elements, Mahabhutani, what are the Mahabhutas? The Akshetra. The Akshetra. Is this body, this body, is it made up of the Mahabhutas? It's Shetra. Mahabhutani Ahamkaro. The I notion. This is the real kicker. Everybody thinks that the I, I see, I hear, I know, I feel, that this I is the real subject. It's called the Ahamkara. It's changing constantly. I am tired. I'm awake. I'm walking. I'm sitting. I'm This I that's constantly changing, how do you know that it's changing? Because it's Shetra. It's not the subject. It's the object. Ahamkara. Krishna says the ego is the Shetra. Just like the elements. Nobody thinks that the elements outside of themselves. But these elements I identify with. And certainly the Ahamkara. The eye maker. The eye doer. That's kara means to make. Aham means I. The eye maker. That thing that makes us an eye is called the ego. This guy is the Shetra. Mahabhutani Amkaro Buddhi. Not only is the ego the Shetra, but the Buddhi. The Buddhi means the intellect. That thing by which I I decide this is good, this is not good, I like this, I don't like this, that's called buddhi. This is like this, that's called buddhi. We all have a buddhi. Some buddhis are better than other buddhis, but we all have a buddhi. And that buddhi, we think it's conscious that it's a subject, but really the buddhi is also kshetra, it's the object. Ahamkaro buddhi, Avyaktam. Now this is a little tough. The word avyaktam means unmanifest. So what does that mean? In the old days, they had two ideas. They said this whole universe is manifest. That's called vyakta. But sometimes, the world becomes unmanifest. Kind of like in a seed state. The whole world, because you know in those days, ever, anybody hear of yugas? You know the yugas? There are four yugas. So in the beginning of creation, a yuga comes. And then they have what's called the great dissolution. The uh, pralaya, they call it. Where the whole yuga comes to an end. That's called the avyakta. But it's there in seed form. And then it comes back the next yuga. And then down. 
this cycle because in those ancient days people saw everything in cycles. They were farmers. This India was always an agrarian society. Night and day. Summer, spring, winter, fall. Summer, spring, winter, fall. Cycle, cyclical. So also manifestation, unmanifestation. Avyakta, vyakta. But whether it's vyakta, manifest, like the five elements, or avyakta, in seed form, that's also kshetra. Avyakta evacha. Indriyani daishikam, the ten senses. Indriya is the senses, daishikam is ten. The ten sense organs, we have five, they said, five sense organs of action, that's called the karmindriyas, such as feet, hands, um, what else did they call it? I think also uh, evacuating, and there's two others, that, that makes five, and then the five senses of seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, tasting. Those are the ten senses. Well, all of them are what? Shetra. Indriyani daishikam cha. Cha indriyago charaha. Not only are the five senses of seeing, touching, smelling, feeling, and hearing, but the objects of those senses. I see forms. I hear sounds, I, I touch um, uh, uh, objects, uh, feelings, the objects of touch. With my smell, I smell the objects of smells, fragrances, sweet, sour. I taste the objects, that's called gochara. So not only are the indriyas, the sense organs, shetra, the objects that I see with those sense organs are kshetra. Now we have a big kshetra, not just the body. That's all kshetra. And he continues, number six. Icha, desire, is desire... The knower or the known? Is it the Shetra or the Shetragnya? Desire. Shetra. Sukha, happiness. Does it belong to the self or does it belong to the not self? Sukha. I say I am happy, but I am not happy because Sukha is Shetra, not the Shetragnya. Sukha, Dukha. Dukha is unhappiness. When there's unhappiness, I feel I am unhappy. But the I is never unhappy. But because I've identified with the mind, these things, each desire, happiness, sorrow, they're all qualities of the mind, shetra. Icha, dvesha, sukha, dukkha, samgata. Now this is an interesting word. He started with the sharira, the body. 
But the Samgata literally means the collection. It means the collection of the body, mind, senses, and ego. That whole collection. Because I don't only feel that I'm this body. I feel I'm a body. I feel that I'm a senses. I feel that I'm a mind. I identify with the whole rigmarole. All of that is me. My memories are me. My happiness and my sorrow is me. My blindness, I am blind. I am deaf. I am mute. I can't feel. It's I that's identified with all of these things out of my ignorance because I don't know who the Shetragnya is and I don't know what the Shetra is. Ichadvesha Sukha Dukha Samgata Chaitana. Chaitana means being aware of an object is Chaitana. It's changing every minute. I'm aware of the computer. I'm aware of the wire. I'm aware of the tree. That's called Chaitana. It's changing every minute. That's also Kshetra. And the last one he mentions is Dhriti. Dhriti means when you have to get up early in the morning and you don't want to get up, but you say, no, I'm going to get up. That's Dhriti. That firmness in the mind that makes us do things even if we really don't want to do them, but we know we should do them. That's called Dhriti. That feeling, we feel that it's, I'm identified, it's Shetra. Dhriti is Shetra. He says, Samasena, that's briefly, he says, Etachetram Samasena, that is the Shetra, Samasena, very briefly, because he could have gone on and on and on. There's no end to dividing up the Shetra infinitely. But briefly, the great elements, the ego, the intellect, the unmanifest, desire, hatred, dritti, firmness, sukha, dukkha, all of it is Shetra. They're all objects. They can't be the subject. I've told you them very briefly, along with their modifications. Along with the modifications. It's interesting. If, if the sense organs are Shetra, they're made up of the five elements, and the outside is made up of the five elements, and everything really is five elements, then you could see that these five elements are moving amongst those five elements. But the witness is just witnessing this in relation to that. But itself has nothing to do with this or that. In the Gita it says, Guna Guneshu Anavartante. The Gunas in the form of this body. Guna, Guneshu. In the Gunas outside, Anuvartante. They are moving. The gunas are moving amongst the gunas. But the witness does nothing. There's another verse in the Gita that says, Indriyani Indriyarteshu. The senses are moving amongst the sense objects. But the witness does nothing. 
If you're identified with the senses, then you're moving out of ignorance. That ends six. We already did seven through eleven. Let's just look at the introduction. 7.0, Shankar says, Already has been set forth in 13, 1 through 6, what is the field? Namely, the group of all transformations comprising the gross elements, etc., etc., and other attributes right up to dritti, this word sustenation is ridiculous. Dritti means firmness. 13, 5, and 6. The field Noah's characteristics will now be set forth. They've described what is the Shetra, and now he's going to have to tell you who is the Shetranya. He's got to describe to Arjuna the nature of the Shetranya. The Lord himself in 13.12, we're now up to 6, in 12, the Lord himself will elucidate what is the field Noah and what are his, what is his nature, what is his characteristic. The knowledge of the field Noah and his potency, when you know who is the field Noah, different from the field, the result will be, anybody see what Shankar says there? Immortality. The second you know that I am that, that field knower, you will attain immortality. Amritta But before doing that, but now, are enumerated the traits, the characteristics the qualities such as non-egoism, amanitvam, madamvitvam, which are the means to get the knowledge of the Shetragnya. If you want to know the Shetragnya, this is not an academic course at the university. You're not going to get it by reading the book and studying this thing. You have to have the qualifications for this knowledge that spiritual faculty of the mind, that inward turn of the mind, in order to get that, these are the preconditions. If it was just a question of being smart and you could memorize the whole Gita and repeat it, then anybody could do it. But this business, this is the real sadhana, the jnana sadhana, if you want to get the knowledge of the shetranya, not intellectually, but that it sinks into your own experience, it becomes something of value to you, it becomes something not just that you read about or heard about, but like the berry on the palm of your hand. Sakshat, direct and immediate. Sakshat parabrahma, that Brahman which is direct and immediate. If you want that, these are the qualifications. These are called the jnana sadhanas. Humility, unostentatiousness, not showing off. 
not hurting anybody, putting up with the pairs of opposites, tatiksha, endurance, simplicity, sitting close by a teacher, serving him, questioning him. In Vedanta, when you go to a guru, you just don't serve the guru. The, the Gita says, they should go to a guru, pratipatena, prostrate to the guru, pratiprashnena, question the guru. You have to question the guru. And if he doesn't answer your questions, you leave. Sevaya, and do his service. When he sees out of that attitude of humility, a desire to know because you're asking questions. If you have no questions, it's probably because you're not that interested. This should burn a hole in your head. The whole thing doesn't make any sense at all. There should be a thousand questions that come up. You have to ask the guru those questions. That's the tradition of Vedanta. A student sitting at the feet of a teacher and asking questions and the teacher replying, removing all the doubts in the student's mind. He has to remove the doubts about this teaching because the teaching seems that it contradicts our experience. Duality is our experience. How do you say non-duality? You have to ask them that. So now are enumerated the traits, non-egoism. So here they are. Service to the teacher means acharya upasanam, sitting near the teacher, watching the teacher, because there's two things the teacher does. Not only does he teach you, and not only does he answer your questions, his very behavior, the way he acts in the world, the way he moves in the world, becomes an example for us. We can see this person, my guru, that guru I told you I met in 1995. You want to hear a little about how he lives? Yes. I'll start at the night time, it's easier. <laughs> he goes to bed every night at 10 o'clock. He, went, this, he, he became a monk when he was 52 years old. He's now, when, when I met him, he was about 82. So he had been a monk for 30 years. And ever since he became a monk, he adopted this lifestyle. So this is what it is. I'm not going to get into all the details, but just a general idea of his every day, what this guy is up to. He goes to bed at 10 o'clock every day. He sleeps on the floor on a mat. But not a mat. You know those bamboo things they roll up and stuff? It has no cushion on it. He rolls that out and his, he, the pillow, this is the pillow, no pillow. He only has two, four cloths. One upper, one bottom that's clean. One upper, one bottom that's dirty. He, because after he wears it, he has to wash it and he puts it on the clean. He's got four pieces of cloth. 
sleeps on the floor. 10 o'clock, he goes to bed on this mat. He sleeps four hours. He wakes up at 2 o'clock every day. It's still dark out, of course, 2 in the morning. He wakes up at 2 in the morning, and this is what he does. He sits up on the mat, and the first thought that comes to his mind, whatever it is, what am I going to have for lunch? Oh, my knee hurts. Boy, it looks like a sunny day. Whatever thought comes, for an hour and a half, he does a meditation on that first thought that arises in his mind. From 2 to 3.30 in the morning, the first thought, suppose he says, my knee hurts. What do I mean by my? Who feels the hurt? If I'm aware of the hurt, can the hurt be in me? What is the knee? How do I know it? This business. He goes, anyway. So now it's 3.30 in the morning. It's still dark. Then he gets up and he washes the dirty cloth and he gets the clean cloth ready and he takes a bucket and he goes out in the field and he goes to the bathroom. Every morning, of course, he goes to the bathroom, does his morning bathroom activities. After going to the bathroom, he has to take a bath, first bath. He's required to take a minimum of three baths a day. So he takes his first bath at about 3.30, 4 o'clock. And there's a particular way in which they take the bath because they have to uh, start with the teeth because the teeth are dead and you don't want to touch anything dead before you uh, wash the body. So first they wash the teeth. They have a stick. You may have seen it in India. It's this weird stick that becomes like a brush at the end. They go like this and they clean off their teeth and then they wash themselves with the special kind of mud that the sannyasis have. When he's finished this, it's now about 4.30. He takes a glass of water. He puts out the mat, makes it nice and clean, and he sits down on the mat, and he has two malas. You know these japa malas? He's got two of them. And what he does is, show you this up close in person. You've seen it, but what he did, and there's no gold on his mala. When he saw this mala, he almost threw me out of the room. <laughs> anyway, that's another story. So, he, he's got the mala and he begins here at the counting bead. Every sannyasi, I don't know if you know it, who's a Shankara sannyasi, they all have the same mantra. Does anybody know what a sannyasi's mantra is? Oh. Yeah, but they have also these long mantras, uh, the Mahavakyas. No, Mahavakyas are not mantras, it's something else. This is every sannyasi, there's only one. Shankara, if they are in this tradition, they all have Om as their mantra. So he begins Om, 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 Om. When you go around one full time, 108 ohms, he's got this one, he goes one. Right? Then he begins again, ohm, 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 108, one. When this one has gone all completely finished, 
he's finished. It's something like 10,800 ohms. It takes approximately seven hours to do this. So he sits down at five o'clock in the morning and he sits there till 11 o'clock. He's not finished with it, but that's it. Six hours of japa. I said to Swamiji, what a waste of a life. Six <laughs> hours, you're sitting in the corner there, home, home, home. What is this business? He says, it's not what you think it is. He tried to describe it something like, after a while, the japa kind of is going on by itself. And he knows it's going on because the, uh, the thing is still moving. But his mind gets freed up it's kind of like his mind bifurcates and another part of the mind is able to stare at the self because the meaning of Om, if you've been taught properly, it's not just a question of repeating a syllable, it has a meaning and that meaning turns the mind back to the self and the mind is staring at the self like a jeweler stares at a diamond. If, if you're an expert jeweler and you give a person, that person, a diamond and he's really an expert, he can stare at it and stare at it and then he knows, ah, this is a grade D. Oh, it has a floor, it's a B. It reveals itself in the same way like a jeweler just staring at a diamond, his mind, Ekagrita, one-pointed, staring at that witnessing consciousness. That consciousness reveals its nature to the mind in that state. I'm only talking theoretically here now. I haven't done this before. This is something like he describes. So he does this till 11 o'clock sitting in the corner somewhere, six hours. When that is finished, he puts his japa mala away, and um, he, uh, then he, for the first time, he'll have tea, some chai, and a cracker. He takes chai and a cracker. And this takes about a half an hour, 45 minutes. At 12 o'clock, for two hours every day, he has to study the scripture. And they do it in a very peculiar way. You know, there are ten Upanishads, principal Upanishads, with Shankara's commentary. And there's an order. The Isha Upanishad, then the Prashna, then the Mandaka, then the Mandukya, then the Aitreya, then the Vridharanyaka, then the Chandogya. And he goes through the whole ten, reading the commentary, like I'm reading to you now, of course in Sanskrit. And when he's reading it, he, it's, he's reading it very slowly so that he's trying to really concentrate what is the meaning of this verse? Can I understand it any other? So it takes quite a while. When he finishes all the ten Upanishads, the next thing is the Bhagavad Gita. So he starts with the first chapter and then reading the commentary. He goes through all of the Gita 
And then he has to go through all of the Brahma Sutras, 555 sutras, with Shankara's commentary on every sutra. It takes approximately seven years to go through the full literature. When he gets to the end of the Brahma Sutras, you know what he does? <laughs> Back to the beginning. So when I met him, he was already a monk for about 34 years, so he's gone through it four and a half times. He's gone through it and he was somewhere in that thing. So that's called Shastra Adhyayana. <coughs> a sannyasi every day must study the scripture. This was after the japa to make the mind pure enough so that the scripture, when you read it, can open up meanings that people with gross minds could never grasp or even see that the meaning is even there. So they study the scripture like that. So now that's for two hours. So now it's two o'clock in the afternoon. Now he has what's called free study time. He had to do that. So free study time means maybe he'll read a book. Uh, but he, he used to subscribe to Scientific America and the New Yorker magazine. He used to like to read literary um, criticism and that type of thing. Before he became a monk, he was a chemical engineer, a PhD in chemistry. So he liked science very much. So he'd have some free time. He would read the latest things about the, the what is that called? The, what's that atom smasher, the collagen hydrogen, you know, where they're smashing the things together? CERN. The CERN, yeah. That collider that they have, they bring particles. And he was like an expert on this already. So he would study this, and uh, that was his free time. So now it's four o'clock. He hasn't eaten, by the way. He only takes one meal a day for 30 years. Because the Bhagavad Gita says, Yoga, methinks, is not for one who eats too much, nor for one who doesn't eat at all. Eating but little, sleeping but little. Moderation. Not, not sleeping, but not oversleeping. Not not eating, but not overeating. So there's a yogic way of eating. How much do you eat? You may have heard this. You're supposed to fill up half your stomach with food, one quarter with liquid, and you leave one quarter for air. Okay. So anyway, what it really means is you're not gorging yourself with food. A yogi has to eat light because when if you eat too much, you become tamas. And if you eat light and little, then the mind becomes very sattvic. And that's what really a yogi is trying to get to have that sattvic mind. So he eats but a little. And as a sannyasi, he didn't have to be a big, strong guy because they don't do anything. They're sitting all day. So it's not necessary to have tons of protein and things like that. So what happens is, now it's dinner time. So he takes his one meal. And the meal is almost always the same for 30 years. He's been eating the same garbage. I don't know how he's alive. <laughs> the way it works is this. He takes three rotis. 
three rotis. Everybody know what a roti is? A chapati? You know those flat Indian breads? He gets three rotis and he puts it on his hand. And then either dal or sabji. Anybody know what sabji is? Sabji is like a, a vegetable stew where they cook it up and it, uh, overcooked with spices and all sorts of crap. It's so unhealthy. This oil. Is a, and oil. Lots of oil. Lots of oil and spices and overcooked and dead. And what they do is this amount, he puts it in, one, two, three, that's it. Three scoops, three rotis. And then he grabs the end of the roti and he scoops up the sabji and he eats like this. And that's it, that's his dinner. Just, it's called sharira stiti matra. Merely for the maintenance of the body, he's taking this food. Not to satisfy his tongue, but just to keep the body going so that he can do his sadhana. This is the idea. Okay? Now it's getting uh, maybe 7, 7.30. So what happens? He didn't finish his japa. So he sits down and does approximately 45 minutes to an hour to finish off the final japa because he has to get to the counting bead on this one. And now it's about 9.30, 9 o'clock. He puts out the blank, the, the bamboo thing and he sits on it and for one hour he reviews the whole day in his mind. Did I do anything wrong today that's not appropriate for a sannyasi? Did I hurt anybody's feelings? Did I eat too much? Did I not study properly? He reviews every single thing that he did through the day. And if he sees that he did something wrong, that he should have done it differently or better, he makes a resolve, tomorrow I won't make that mistake. And then at 10 o'clock, lies down, four hours sleep, gets up, first thought in the mind, one and a half hour meditation, takes his bath, cleans his clothes, and sits down for six hours at Japa. So when did I have the time to study with him? He gave up his Scientific America in the New Yorker, those two hours. He says, you can come then. And that's when I would study from about 2 to 4.30. I would go to him every day, and he made time for me to study the scripture. Who would want that type of life? Obviously not me, and most likely not any of us sitting in this room. But you can imagine how a mind like that maybe has that spiritual faculty going pretty strong. So when I went to him and I met him first and he said, a jnani doesn't feel the pain, I said, Swamiji, are you a jnani? Are you a wise man? And he looked at me, he said, the one who's sitting in front of you now, talking to you now, is absolutely, totally an ignorant man. I am an ignorant man. And if anybody ever tells you they're a wise man, leave immediately. He said, I want to put a sign in the front of uh, the uh, gate here. No jnanis allowed. 
Only Ajnanis. We don't want any wise men in here. That was his answer. It wasn't out of humility. It was the truth. The one who's talking to you is an ignorant man. The wise man can't talk to you because he's that. The wise man has no students. There's no teacher-student. There's no scripture. Even the Upanishad says, in that state, the Veda becomes no Veda. Even the scriptures are out the window. They've served their purpose, but now there's not even a Veda left. What to talk about a teacher or a student? So no, he was an ignorant man, and he's still an ignorant man. I said, Swamiji, how long will you be an ignorant man until this body goes? How long do you have to do sadhana? When's the sadhana over? As long as this ego is here, the sadhana will continue. The only difference is that at some point it becomes effortless. In the beginning, effort. After a while, it becomes your very nature. You don't have to make an effort. You are perfectly dharmic. The wise man will behave in a way that is so beautiful that we can watch him and copy him because his behavior becomes a model for us. Has anyone ever heard of Nisargadatta? Yes. The famous Advaitin? Let me tell you a little story about him. People tell me I shouldn't do this, <laughs> but I don't care because I'm not paid for it and I'm not looking for any disciples, so I can do this thing. Nisargadatta, I don't know if everybody knows about him. He used to be, um, he was a family man, and he had a shop in Mumbai, Bombay, which was a beady shop. He sold beadies. Everybody know what beadies are? They're the little Indian cigarettes that people smoke. They're wrapped up and they got nicotine inside. And he was, he sold the beadies and he was addicted to the beadies. He smoked, chain-smoked beadies, Nisargadatta. He had the store downstairs and upstairs he had a little room. And after work, he'd close up the store and he'd go upstairs, he'd bring his beadies with him, and he would sit there, chain-smoking beadies and having satsang. So one day, a lady in the audience raised their hand and said, Maharaj, you are a saint. You are a holy man. You are a jnani. How can you sit there in front of us with that disgusting habit of smoking beadies? Whoa. Nisargadatta looked at him and said, Madam, you see me as someone who's smoking beadies, but I see myself as the ever-pure self. That's the difference between you and me. You see me as smoking beadies, but I see myself as the ever-present witnessing consciousness. That was his answer. How do you like that answer? 
You like it. Anybody not like it? <laughs> How about if he said he got up and he put his hand in someone's pocket and took out their money, put it in his pocket. Hey, what are you doing? Sir, you see me as taking your money out of your pocket. I am the, but I see my, boom, boom, boom. Shankaracharya says, if a wise man could perform adharma, if he can do anything adharmic, how is he different than a dog eater? When you realize the self, you will be the perfect example of what it is like to be dharmic. Because you'll be free from jealousy. You don't want anything from anybody. You, you, in order to get that knowledge, you had to leave the most dharmic life. Now that you have it, will you revert back to adharma? Never in a million years. Godapat. In the nice karma city, there's a whole discussion about this. Can a wise man perform a dharma? Because some people say the wise man is beyond dharma and a dharma, beyond righteousness and unrighteousness. And Sarasvaracharya says he had to become totally dharmic to get the jnana. Unless he's another fool. Will he now revert back to Adharma, having gained the supreme purifying knowledge? Sureshwar says it's impossible. Shankaracharya says, he gives this example. If a person is hungry, will he want to eat poisonous food? If a person has had a sumptuous, delicious meal, Unless he's another idiot, will he want to eat poison? It's impossible. The wise man must be dharmic, but not because of any rules, but because it's become his very nature. Compassion, peace, free from desire, no anxiety. All of those qualities that we read about uh, who this person is, compassionate, free from anger, content with anything, equanimity of mind, the same in, in praise and blame. When that lady was blaming him, look what he did. He wanted to be defensive. He wanted to excuse. He knows it's a bad habit. He knows he shouldn't be smoking beaties and talking Vedanta. He couldn't stop. He was addicted. So he rationalized his behavior by saying, oh, I'm that, so I can smoke, I can sleep with the uh, female devotees, I can rob their money. That's what they see. That type of answer is nothing. That's, that will take you nowhere. If you think that the wise man could be just like an ignorant man, we don't know who the wise man really is. Please. Because you're already saying that the, the wise man is ignorant anyway, so jnani nishta. So they are actually in ignorance anyway, because there's only one jnani and that's the Brahman. That's correct. So, 
And to some extent, the standard that here is unobtainable, actually, because when he was smoking, he wasn't killing anyone or hurting anyone or sleeping with anyone or stealing from anyone. Um, it, it, he could be mentally, he could be completely renounced inside, he could be completely even-minded and all the things we've been saying, okay. but just because of this cosmetic thing that mm. people are seeing, he, you know, we're kind of damning him. That, that's, that's just my feeling. So okay. how do we, I mean, there, is there any, this idea of perfection? I mean, I've heard stories about other real life people who are, who lose their temper once in a while, you know, people we look up to. Is, is it actually unobtainable? That's the question, mm. this, this, this ideal mm. that, that the scriptures now. Does a person who wants to get this knowledge, does he have to give up his bad habits? All these qualities here that are mentioned in order to get the knowledge, you take a look at that and you see that you have to change your life. It's not for everybody. Control of the senses, control of the mind. You have to give up all the bad habits. You know it's bad for your body. The sannyasi has to keep his body healthy. How else is he going to do his sadhana? Can you imagine if I was up here smoking cigarettes now and talking to you about this? <laughs> what a ridiculous thing. It just... It, it was just the days, and those days it was acceptable. It wasn't acceptable to anybody. He was bullshitting. He was bullshitting himself and bullshitting that answer. You can say the same thing about, I'm going to take all the money from the people. I'm going to cheat them and steal because I'm beyond dharma and adharma. So I can rationalize my behavior. That's not Vedanta. That's Shmadanta. That's some nonsense. The real Vedanta is to get the knowledge you must be totally, your life has to be pure and clean with, with no stealing or jealousy or cheating. Or, all of the virtues have to be cultivated by effort. But after jnana, all of those qualities will remain with no effort at all. They'll be your very nature. Compassion. You won't want to hurt anybody including your own body. You'll give up the bad habits to get the knowledge. And after the knowledge, those habits will become effortless. That's the difference between a sadhaka and a siddha. The siddha has those qualities of humility, compassion, with no effort at all. But for people like us, we have to make a great effort to get those type of qualities. Because Vedanta is not like studying a book. You have to change your life. If, if you think you can just continue living just like you've been living and become a Vedantin, you haven't studied the Bhagavad Gita. You've studied somebody like Muji. <laughs> just go in the audience, he talks, and you become enlightened. Very good. But that's not the Bhagavad Gita. Here you see Shankaracharya is saying, these are the qualities necessary to get jnana. The jnana sadhanas. There are practices to get jnana. Because we've all heard this teaching, you are that. How many times? How many hundreds of times have you heard it? 
Has your suffering ended? Has your fear ended? Has your desires ended? Why? You're not qualified. You have to take it like that. When you're qualified, this teaching is just three words and you'll understand it and it's over. You'll understand it not with your mind, but you'll intuit it deep in your own experience and that ignorance will go and never come back. It can't come back because you realize there never was any ignorance. It's not that you got rid of ignorance. You've realized there's no ignorance. I am that, ever free. I never had ignorance. I don't have it now. I never will. How did I get to Nisargadatta? So, anyway, it's because when it says you need all of these qualities, I was just thinking about Nisargadatta didn't have these qualities and he was rationalizing his behavior to the lady. She was absolutely right in calling him out on that. And his answer was absolutely bogus. You can't say, oh, because I'm a jnani, I can do anything. You guys, you should be pure and everything, but me, I'm beyond, I don't have to worry about any of that. Why? Because I'm an atma jnani. That type of talk, will just keep you in bondage. If you're teaching that to your students, then they think they can smoke BDs too. Let's all go out and smoke BDs and get drunk. Why not? Suppose he was drinking and the lady said, Maharaj, you're a saint. How can you sit here belting down whiskey? Madam, you see me as drinking whiskey. <laughs> nah, it's not going to work. He didn't, doesn't claim to be an Advaita Vedanta teacher, does he? Yeah. I mean, he's just, uh, a not yogi. Yeah, but it's Advaita philosophy. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't know Vedanta. Yeah, I, I read his book and yeah. no other book uh, teaches me so much. That thou art. That's his book, yeah. Uh, I am that. I am. Yeah, and uh, mm. I truly believe that uh, he, he knows something. Knows nothing. I, there's a whole critique. The knots. Do you remember I told you that during Shankara's time there were many Advaita Vedantins, just like Shankara, but Shankara was criticizing all those other Advaitins because they didn't know the method of Vedanta, amongst other things. Mm -hmm. The knots don't know. Do you know how he claims that he got enlightened? What the story? No? Maybe we'll discuss it ourselves. I don't think it's that a bit. But he wasn't a, a Vedantin. He didn't know Vedanta. He didn't teach the Bhagavad Gita. He didn't study the Upanishads. He didn't know anything about Shankaracharya. He had a Nat Guru. And that's a whole other Sampradaya. It's Advaita. There are many other schools of Advaita. But they don't know the Advaita that's taught here. I'm going to show you in the Gita that it's not just Shankara. This is the method of the Upanishads. How the Upanishads teach something that can't be taught. How they describe something that's indescribable. 
how they make something known that's unknowable. No word can describe it. No concept can conceive of it. How to teach it? There is a way. We're going to discuss that in this class here. So when you leave here, every one of you, I hope if you pay attention, will know what is the method of Vedanta, the ancient tradition of Vedanta, the method of the Upanishads. Then you can compare that to every other teaching and see what the defect is in that teaching. That may be ambitious. You may not be able to do that. <laughs> but you may get move in that direction at least. Your critical faculties will be sharpened. You won't just accept anything. It's all Advaita. It's not as simple as that. What I'd like to do, which I haven't done, is spend, give a little chance here for questions. We'll do 10-15 minutes of questions. I hope somebody has a couple of good questions. I know there's one question over here, we're going to wait on that question. And Veda Morty has a question. Please. <laughs> uh, you were talking about uh uh, uh, the jnani doesn't see the world, but the world sees the, sees the jnani. And you uh, told, I think it was one sentence, how it works, how, it, how, how is it possible that the, the world sees the jnani, as you said, they attributed to him. Let, let me just clarify one thing in your question. The, the jnani doesn't see the world, but the world sees the body of the jnani and attributes that body that that's the jnani. That guy sitting in front of me, that's the jnani. That's what they think. The guy with the beard and the orange robe and, and he's sitting there with the straight back, that's the jnani. And the question how, how is... How does this appearance mm -hmm. How is the appearance... Why does it appear to the ignorant people that he's a jnani? Yeah. Because they don't know who the jnani is. They don't know that you can't see a jnani. That the jnani is yourself. He's not out there. He's the witness in you. That's who the jnani has become. That's the real jnani. You can't see a jnani. All you can see is this body, mind, and senses because of your ignorance. You attribute that the jnani is talking, but the jnani has no mouth. You attribute that the jnani has all of these qualities of compassion and peacefulness, but the jnani has no compassion. There's no second thing for him. It's a very subtle subject that there's a difference between a stitta pregnya, someone who's established in this knowledge, and a jnani. My guru, I consider a jnananishta. He's established. You see this guy with six hours a day, and he's the, his mind is buried in that thing. He, 
he thinks it, he lives it, he, he walks the walk, he talks the talk, he's, he's not... But that's not a jnana. That's called the jnanishta. Someone with a mind. The, the scripture says, don't go to a jnani. Why? You can't go to a jnani. You can go to a brahmanishta. Someone whose mind... If a person has a mind, is he a jnani? But the jnana has a mind. Read the description in the Gita. When his mind is free from all desires, when he's withdrawn all of his limbs like a tortoise, does that sound like a jnani? That's a stitta pregna. There's a difference. You can only go to a stitta pregna, a jnana He will teach you. He will be compassionate. But he's not a jnani. He's in the same duality than you are. The only difference is he is he's intuited directly that truth and it's become part of his experience. He knows what the truth is and he knows that this world is just like a dream just like Maya. He's not fooled by it. But that's not the jnana. That's only the wise man. That's who we have to go to. Shrotriya. Someone who knows the method of Vedanta. Brahmanishta. Someone who's established. Their mind is established in that. That person, they will teach you. A jnani won't teach you. A jnani can't teach you. You don't even exist for a jnani. When all has become the self alone, what will he see and with what? That's the jnani. The scripture says, where one sees another, hears another, knows another, that is small. When the Sargadatta was saying, you see me as smoking a beady, but I see myself as that infinite awareness. That person who sees himself as the infinite awareness is an ignorant person. It's not a jnani. And he's rationalizing his behavior by talking like that. We have to go to somebody who's established in that wisdom and knows the method of Vedanta. You can't go to a jnani. A jnani doesn't write any commentaries. Shank, the one who wrote this, Shankar is not a jnani. His guru was not a jnani. And my guru was not a jnani. Because there's no Vedanta in truth. When Gaudapada says, there is no creation... That's the end of it, right there. He didn't even have to say anything else. But he goes, there's no creation. There's no destruction. You don't have to destroy anything. There's nobody bound. I thought, I'm bound because of my ignorance. But he said, there's nobody bound. He said, there's nobody practicing sadhana. But Shankara said we had to practice the jnana sadhana. He said, 
There's nobody who desires liberation. Yesterday I said the most important quality is a burning desire for liberation. And he said, there's nobody liberated. This is the highest truth. If you don't know the highest truth, then there is ignorance. Then there is something to know. But when the ignorance is gone, there's only the self. Nobody to know it, no need to know it, because you've always been that. That's moksha. If anything is moksha, it's not a new state. It's your eternal nature. You don't become free. You are free. You don't have to do anything to get moksha. Because that witness in you was never bound. It was never limited. It never had to get knowledge. It never had any ignorance. Ignorance and knowledge is in the mind. Misconceptions are in the mind. The witness of the thought, I am this, is not affected by that thought. The witness of the thought, I am not this, is not affected by that thought. That's yourself, ever free. When the ignorance is gone, you're that. You don't know you're that. You don't have to know you that. Why would you have to... The self doesn't want to know itself. It can't know itself. Think about deep sleep. Do you know yourself? Can you know yourself? Are there any gurus in deep sleep that could teach you about the self? Why? Because there's only the self. That's moksha. No time, no space, no causality, no ego, no gurus, no students, no scriptures. That's called Advaita Vedanta. Is it possible to get? Absolutely not. Why? You are that. The re that very question is because you know, in the Bhagavad Gita, in the Bhashya, there's a question. The student asks the teacher, Shankara, he objects. He says, to whom does this ignorance belong? Shankara says, it belongs to you who asked the question. So the guy says, yeah, but doesn't the scripture say, I am Brahman? And Shankara says, if you know that, then you know there never was any ignorance belonging to anyone. If you ask the question, you're already in ignorance. It belongs to you. But aren't I Brahman? If you know you're Brahman, then you know there never was any ignorance. It's in the Bhashya, you can read it. All of this teaching about ignorance and knowledge is in the realm of ignorance. All this talk about liberated people and bound people and enlightened sages is all in ignorance. There's no such thing in Advaita. Did you have a question?
that was some. Please. Um, when we take this last attachment, if I'm going all the way and then this last thing, I cannot delete myself, this last ignorance. So, who will do that? that? Did you hear the question? The question is. Even after I've removed every single thing, not this, not this, I know I'm not the body, I know I'm not the mind, I know I've rejected everything, why is it that I can't get rid of the ignorance by doing that? That's the question? It's because the guy that's doing the negation, that wants to know who am I, am I the body? No, I'm not. He negates it. Am I the senses? No, I'm not. They're objects, they're changing. Am I the, the intellect? No. Am I the ego? No. Then who am I? This guy that's negated everything, he still doesn't know who he is. The Buddhists have already negated, I'm not the body, I'm not the senses, I'm not the mind, I'm not the ego. And you know what the Buddhists say? There's no self. That guy that wants to know, who am I? He's negated everything. If you read Naish Karma Siddhi, that book, this subject is, there's a whole chapter. Why is it that no matter what I do, even negation will not remove my ignorance? And in the end, the guru has to do the final negation. Because whatever you do, Whatever discrimination you make, you remain as the discriminator. You still want to know the self, but you are the self, you can't know it. So this guy, no matter what he does or how hard he tries, he's still there. And the function of the guru, for that student who's negated everything, and that's as far as he could go, etavat, only that far. When you're stuck up in that final ego that wants to know, Koham, then who am I? The guru in the Shastra says, you are that. And it removes that final ego that wants to know. When there's no more knower, no more knowing, and nothing known, that is called mukti. The guy who wants to know that thinks I'm ignorant of myself and I want to know myself, that guy has to go. And no matter what you do, you won't get rid of that guy. It's only from the grace of the guru and the scripture. In the end, they have to remove it. That jnana nishta who's sitting in front of you, he will teach you. And that final ego will go. When that goes, You'll be that. You won't even know it. But then I leave the body also. You won't leave the body. You know why? You never had a body. (laughs) (laughs) The body will continue just like it is. Don't worry, you're not going to drop dead. This will continue until you get old, if you're lucky, and you drop dead naturally. It will continue. But the self never had a body. It doesn't have a body now. It never will, because it's always unattached, ever free. But in our ignorance, I feel that I'm the knower, because I'm identified with my mind. 
and I want to know the self. I can never know the self. The very desire to know the self is the bondage. And only the guru in the end can remove that eye that wants to know, that ego that's still sitting there, that wants to know the self, or that ego that thinks, oh, now I know the self. How about that guy? You know what Shankar says? If the ego were to think, I know the self, or I am liberated, there would still be no end to his suffering. If this ego thinks, I am free, he still will suffer. Because as long as the ego is there, knowing anything, seeing anything, believing anything, I believe in non-duality. I believe this world is false. Suffering. The self doesn't believe anything. It doesn't have any convictions. It's pure consciousness. Satchitananda. That's who you are. Not somebody who believes something. Not somebody who can forget something. Not somebody who has a conviction about something. That person is an ignorant person and they suffer. I think I'm grappling with the same thing. I think we all are. Um, and so if the ego is removed, the guru says, thou art that, and then the ego is actually removed. Um, then the body continues. Um, and the mind is still there as well. Of course. And this mind still has convictions. I'm not sure I have a question. I think that was maybe it. That's it. That's the person we have to go to. That person who still, that body, mind and senses that has discriminated and knows the witness and knows the witness is coming and going, appearing and disappearing. It can't be real. And he can explain that to you. That ignorant jnana nishta is the guru. But the jnani, he's that. That's the correct way to understand Vedanta. Time's up. Let's do the Purnamada. That is fullness. This is fullness. From that fullness, this fullness came. Take away this fullness. Fullness alone remains. Yeah. Okay. We're off. I'll see you.